to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I'm joined here again today by the lovely Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the case of Ray Crone, and Journey is going to be educating us on the science of forensic podiatry and how this played a role in this case. I also would like to note, uh, just before we start, that there is a listener's discretion advised because we do have descriptions of stabbing during the case study. So... Without further ado, Nicole, would you like to tell us about the case of Ray Crone? I would love to. I will preface this with saying it's not going to be a super long case study compared to some of the others we've had, um, but it is still quite a fascinating one. Um, And so it does begin on December 29th, 1991, where 36-year-old Kim Ancona was found deceased on the floor of the men's bathroom in the bar she had worked at in Phoenix, Arizona. And so it was like a type of lounge bar. And so we'll find out that the Ray Ray Crone, who becomes the main suspect, he used to um, like play darts here a lot. So it was very much just a casual, I wouldn't say dive bar, but um, that kind of atmosphere. Um, She was found naked, lying on her back and stabbed to death in a pool of her own blood. And... When investigators found her body, they had noticed that there were bite marks left on both her throat and her breast, and this became the main source of evidence to use into the in the trial. Excuse me, but aside from these marks, um, very little actually existed um, in terms of physical evidence at the crime scene. So this meant that there were no semen samples to gather from. There were no like physical pieces of evidence that could be collected and tested. None of this. But, however, they did collect saliva samples. Um, They swabbed the bite marks to try and get samples from there. And they did take samples of the blood that was found on the floor and among other places in the scene. That being said, though, there were a pair of um, footprints left behind in the blood. So I guess it was a trail leaving her body outside, out to, like, the door. Um, There was... The, there were, sorry, these footprints, and they were later identified as coming from a pair of Converse shoes, and they were estimated to be a men's size 10 to de- 10 and a half, excuse me. So I don't know if you guys own Converse, but they have a, quite a distinct um, sole pattern underneath that are kind of unique to Converse, so it was quite easy for them to identify that. Um, but once all this evidence was found, testing was run on the blood, and this came back as matching the victim, so matching Kim and Kona's. And then the saliva samples were said to, quote, or sorry, they had, quote, came from someone with the most common blood type, end quote. So it didn't really specify much further into who could have been this contributor of this saliva sample, and it left quite a large window open yeah that's a very broad um yeah (laughs) yeah sorry no that's just very broad like okay the most common blood type like thank you didn't narrow that down at all yeah and i think it was our um 
what episode did we do? It wasn't the serology one. We did an episode about like secretors and stuff like that. And so like, sure, it helps that you know it's the most common blood type, but the amount of people that are in that common blood type pool is massive. Yeah. yeah. Um. So anyways, that that's there. Doesn't really help out the case in any sense. And once evidence was collected, a friend of the victims, so a friend of Ann Kona's, had told investigators that a regular customer, Ray Crone, um, he was supposed to help her close up the bar the night before her death. So once they found this out, he kind of became their main suspect in the case. And they f- soon found out that he was a regular at this lounge bar space where Kim worked. Um, they were frequently seen together, so they were they were acquainted with each other. Like they, he was a regular. She worked there often. They knew each other. And I guess a week prior to her death, um, Ray had driven her to a Christmas party. So it wasn't as if they were strangers, but they weren't also like the bestest of friends. Um, so this kind of set some alarm bells off for investigators. But as they did some more. Um, questioning the night of the murder ray's roommate had told the police though that ray crone had been home and in bed by 10 p.m and this statement um cooperates with the statement ray had given to the police and i know at this point it's kind of like a he said she said um maybe the roommate's working with ray but i don't know it just seems pretty compelling that he wasn't there that night um And because of the bite mark evidence found, investigators had then gone to Crone and asked him to bite into a piece of styrofoam to provide an impression. And so they later took this bite, um, the styrofoam bite, and compared it to the bites um, left on Ancona's body. Uh, I recommend listeners go listen to our bite mark analysis episode if you haven't heard that one yet we talk a lot about why this is not a great form of forensic science especially using styrofoam um but anywho it's 1991 they don't really know better at this point but a um a search warrant was then obtained for ray's resident or sorry residence and while they were there they did recover four pairs of athletic shoes and they were similar to the ones um, that had left the footprints at the scene, but none of the four were the Converse brand, so they didn't match, air quotes around that word, um, which I find interesting. And then on December 31st, 1991, which is only two days after Kim Ancona was discovered, Ray Crone um, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. So... Was, it was he a very... only arrested because of mm-hmm. that they found the athletic shoes and the bite mark evidence? Mm-hmm. And they had a statement saying that he was supposed to help her close the restaurant or the bar that night she died. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all that's right. not like, a lot to go on. <laughs> no. So it's all circumstantial. Like, you'll come to learn that it's all circumstantial. Um, I mean, I guess their bite mark evidence they didn't see it as circumstantial at the time now it's safe for us to say that it, it's pretty circumstantial evidence um it's hard to build the full case off of it well even 
Yeah, even the shoes, mm-hmm. like the fact that they weren't converse, yeah, couldn't then match the converse footprint or shoe prints. Yeah, exactly. But I guess because they were yeah. similar, that was enough for them. I feel like this was like one of those cases where it was basically just this could be our guy. I don't want to look too much further into this case. He could do it. Let's just charge him and get it over with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Um, which obviously is not great and should not be how the system runs, but unfortunately there are cases like that. But yeah, basically it took them two days to create a case against him and charge him, which is mind-boggling to me. Um, so this was December 31st he was charged. The case then went to trial in 1992, so the beginning of 1992, And this whole trial, of course, Ray Crone maintained his innocence. Um, A lot of, I guess, innocence to maintain. Like, there was nothing substantial against him. So, I don't know. If I was in his position, I wouldn't see anything wrong with maintaining my innocence. Um, But the leading evidence that was brought forward during this case was the testimony provided by these bite mark experts. And so they had examined the styrofoam marks he had bit into and the victim, the marks on the victim. They said that Crone's impression matched. And so that was what put him away to jail. It still makes me so mad. Yeah. Sorry, it makes me so mad that bite mark evidence is so, was so strongly used. Mm-hmm. And I guess because like... At the time, they don't know any different. It's so easy for us to see after the fact that, holy crap, that's a not great science to solely base your evidence on. Um, Yeah. But if that's all they had and they just wanted to finish this case up and close it, they'd be like, yeah, this is great. Like, this puts him here, all of this stuff. Um, So frustrating. I know. I'm with you. I'm with you on that boat. And even though they had this um, podiatry evidence about his, like, the sole of his foot and the um, converse kind of sole, none of the evidence and information had actually been submitted into trial. Um, I don't know why. I didn't really find anything as, I guess they didn't see it as substantial enough to submit. Um, But yeah, Crone was convicted largely on circumstantial evidence, and those testimonies provided by the um bite mark x ex- bite mark analysis experts were what convicted him um and he ended up being convicted on the murder and kidnapping charges so they ended up dropping the sexual assault assault charge and i believe it's i don't know if this is the case but because they didn't find any semen samples at the crime scene i don't know if that was kind of the main contributor for dropping that charge um but it was just the the first-degree murder and kidnapping that he ended up being convicted for. And um, this conviction resulted in a sentence to death in addition to a consecutive 21-year term of imprisonment. Um, I am very frustrated by this because it's hard for me to understand how they can sentence someone to death when... The evidence is very circumstantial. Like, there's no hard evidence proving it's him. Um, 
so I find it quite interesting that they sentenced yeah. him to that. But he spent no, four that's years, crazy. right? Yeah, um, he ended yeah. up spending four years on death row too. And by 1996, he appealed his conviction, um, and his conviction did end up being overturned due to legal technicalities. So I guess the prosecutors in the initial 92 trial didn't disclose exculpatory evidence regarding the bite mark analysis. Um, and so exculpatory, basically, this just means they had evidence from bite mark, like other bite mark expert analysis, oh, sorry, other bite mark analysis experts, tongue twister, um, basically saying that Ray Crone could not have been the source of that bite mark on the victim's body. And so I don't know if it just wasn't disclosed at all, this information, or if the prosecution brought it forward kind of at the very last second before his original trial, and it was kind of just too late to use the evidence. Like, I don't really know how the system works in that sense. Um, I don't understand how they can get away with not disclosing that evidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm kind of confused, too, because if there's... Like, especially not even the fact that you're not disclosing it, but who can you be as a person to know that there's evidence saying this guy didn't do it to then proceed and go forward to convict him to death? Like, and he gets a death sentence, you know? So, yeah. How do you see the night knowing that? Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of questions uh, surrounding that in my mind. Um. I don't know enough about legal proceedings to know like when evidence is submitted or how that all works to properly in like know what happened in this case. Um, if you, ha- if any listeners know, please let us know because I would like to know how this could have happened. Um, but yeah, so I guess that information wasn't disclosed, but during his appeal, the court ended up not even ruling on the concealment of these results. And so the results did come from a forensic odontologist who said that his teeth were not consistent with the bite marks found on the body. But during the appeal, somehow the court just looked past that as well. Like it was just a whole nother set of looking past it. Um, But yeah, so they didn't do anything with that that was kind of dropped and then during the retrial um dna evidence was introduced that indicated the blood present didn't belong to so sorry back up so there was blood present that matched the victims at the start that i mentioned with the blood pooling around her body they had also obtained other blood samples that they found to not match ray crone or even kim and kona like the victim and so even with this information and the exculpatory evidence that was like hidden basically he was still convicted on the basis of the bite mark evidence put forward um so rather than life sentence this time though he was sentenced to life or sorry rather than death sentence this time he was sentenced to life imprisonment and the shocking thing that gets 
even better is that the trial judge even went on to say, quote, the court is left with a residual or lingering doubt about the clear identity of the killer, end quote. And after sentencing Ray to life in prison, he then went on to say, quote, this is one of those cases that will haunt me for the rest of my life, wondering whether I have done the right thing, end quote. Um, so my only question is what happens happened to beyond a reasonable doubt, like that whole concept in yep. court, you know? Well, the fact that there was DNA evidence saying that he wasn't there and that there was shoe evidence saying that he wasn't there and mm-hmm. bite mark evidence saying that he didn't bite the victim and they still were like, no, he did it. But like, I'm going to feel bad about saying that he did it, but he did it. But they're still going to go through with it. Like, how do yeah. you even create a case at that point if nothing yeah. points to their suspect? Like, who, like, was it a, I just want to know, like, if, if it's a jury trial, how they had convinced the jury of this, or if it was just a bench trial, like, you know what I mean? There's so many questions surrounding it that just yep. scream effed up justice system. <laughs> yep. But yeah, so again, he went to prison for a second time after this because they still found him guilty. Um, His attorneys, though, didn't give up on trying to prove his innocence. Um, But he ended up spending another six years in prison before finding some, uh, not finding evidence, but like providing evidence of his innocence. So in 2002, um, this is when everything came to light. So John DiMaggio, I believe his name is, he's the founder and president of the American Society of Forensic Podiatry. He was actually called in by Crone's defense attorney. And so he was brought in to see if he could look at the print and see if it could exclude Crone as a suspect. And so a cast of his foot was taken. And I guess DiMaggio had sent in a report basically verifying that Ray Crone's foot size was about an 11 to an 11 and a half. Therefore, just size alone meant that his foot could not have fit the shoe print left at the crime scene. And then when you take that evidence into consideration with the sole of the foot that was left behind, um, the, the soles didn't match either. He didn't own a pair of Converse. So that still excludes him in that sense. So on top of this podiatry evidence, on April 4th, 2002, DNA tests were conducted on the saliva and blood samples collected from the crime scene back in 1991. And these results, I guess, obviously, they didn't have the DNA testing, like the, a good enough DNA testing at the time. So in 2002, they were able to redo some of these tests. But the results... The results excluded Crone as the source, and not only did it exclude him as the source of DNA, it also connected a man named Kenneth Phillips to the crime. So, the forensic... Um, Do you know how they were able to connect it to Kenneth Phillips? He had a prior, so he was already in the system, and so his DNA was already on file, um... So yeah, so they had connect they were able to connect it to Kenneth Phillips, I guess due to his prior. At least that's what I assume. They didn't say it, that's my assumption. Um so the forensic podiatry evidence 
helped build their case and it played a really supportive role um in addition to that dna evidence and it was kind of, i would say mainly the dna evidence because it is more scientifically accurate than podiatry but in conjunction with each other that evidence did exonerate crone as the killer and they ended up leading like they were ending wow english is so hard they ended up able to find the real killer after exonerating him at the time of kim ancona's murder uh phillips who was the actual perpetrator he lived about half a kilometer away from the lounge and at the time too he was on probation because he had broke broken into a neighbor's apartment and just began choking her out and threatening to kill her and somehow he never made it onto the police radar for a possible suspect um which is a little baffling to me because if there's a man with a prior this close why would you not like why would you go after someone who had no previous criminal record he was like and the thing with ray crone too was he was he had no previous criminal record he was honorably discharged from the military and he had a steady postal service job of seven years so like, if you see that that's not oh, really screaming so he didn't fit yeah yeah very much not the profile of a killer really yeah it doesn't scream hey i'm going to kill a server in the bar bathroom and then just carry on with my yeah. life. And yet this didn't phase the police at all. They were like, yeah, this is definitely our guy. Which is frustrating. That's so frustrating. Heck. Yeah. And so um, 20 days after Ancona's murder too, Phillips was accused of sexually assaulting and choking a seven-year-old girl and was imprisoned because of this. So, like, 20 days after murdering an individual to go and assault a seven-year-old, and yet still cops don't think anything of it, kind of raises some alarm bells in my mind, but that's just me. Well, even if they had, like, properly searched for the correct perpetrator, like... That seven-year-old girl, there's a good chance that she wasn't going to be sexually assaulted and choked. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And so that is to say, though, I don't know when he sexually, like, he sexually assaulted and choked the seven-year-old. I don't know if it was prior to the 20 days or if it took them 20 days to solve that case. That wouldn't surprise me either. Um, oh. You know what I mean? Like, he was... Oh, okay. Like, that's when he was... Right. No, I thought the way you said it sounded like he had done that or 20 days after. I yeah. So that's my interpretation of it. Um I don't know for sure though, I will say. Um yeah. But that's yes, fair. it was it was within that time frame that that happened. And okay. Surprisingly, after obtaining those DNA results on, what was it, April 4th, four days later, Ray Crone was a free man. <laughs> so on April 8th, 2002, he was released. 
which baffles me baffles oh my, my favorite word this episode it seems but it shocks me because it took them 10 years to try and like back up their theory that ray crone did it but in a matter of four days he was shown to be innocent and released and i don't know that just doesn't no, sit like crazy. that just doesn't make sense in my mind no, like, if it takes that long to prove they're guilty, but that short of a time to prove their innocence, like, I I yeah. think they should have known which one was the right answer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I agree. And in addition to even this happening and him being free in four days, the county attorney who, like, had sent him to jail kind of the first two or first time, he still defended his decision against Ray, saying that there was, quote, strong circumstantial evidence, end quote, of his guilt. So I think he's just not good at his job, because if it's strong circumstantial, it's circumstantial. Like, there's nothing to it. It's just word of mouth. Well, that's that feels like an oxymoron, mm -hmm. like strong circumstantial. Yeah. Like, those words don't go together. Yeah. No, I agree. And so he was free by April 8th, free man by then, and then April 24th, all charges against him were dropped and his name was cleared. Again, I find that shocking how fast that happens in comparison to everything else in this case. I find, okay, so when you look at kind of the, the big thing, it took them four days to arrest him from the start of the crime finding the body arresting him in four days 10 years in prison four days to say oh he's innocent he's free yeah i don't know i i don't know that just seems wild in my mind but well it seems crazy that even like after their appeal that it took so long and they're like no that's not enough evidence and so then they mm -hmm. appeal it again and they're like oh, okay wait actually that is enough evidence you're free to go yeah, no, 100%. But um, this same attorney that worked for the prosecution, when he learned of the conclusive evidence of Ray's innocence, he then went on to say, quote, we will try to do better, end quote. And in interviews, he also neglected to mentioned, mention the initial concealment of the odontology evidence, so the one that basically casted doubt on ray crone's guilt um this kind of indicates not 100 percent. i can't for sure say but it basically indicates that this prosecutor may have known that they were prosecuting an innocent man um which i don't know how he can do that like morally as a human but whatever i guess that's his job if he takes it to heart that seriously um, well, that's something that's super scary to be in Crone's position is like, you know, you're innocent, you know, your defense team's going to work as hard as possible to keep mm -hmm. you out of jail, but you don't know who's on the other side and you don't know who the judge is. So you don't know what strings they're going to pull to get you yeah. in jail, which yeah. is so scary. No, I agree. But yeah, so like I had said, he had no criminal record, was honorably discharged, he worked seven years in the Postal Service prior to his wrongful conviction. Like, he just did not fit the mold at all. 
Um, wow, I said that really weird. At all. Sorry. Um, and apparently from... So I think I grabbed this one from the Innocence Project website. But it basically just said, quote, he is the... 100th former death row inmate freed because of innocence since the reinstatement of capital punishment in the United States in 1976, end quote. So I feel like his case is pretty big, not only for the fact that he was the 100th innocent man to be freed on death row, but also because forensic podiatry helped solidify kind of his case and supported the DNA evidence. Um... I just feel like there was a lot that went wrong as well in this case. Um, and I will say, yeah. thankfully, thankfully, it's 10 years and not 20. I know, obviously, 10 years, it's still horrific. Um, there's always a comparison to be made. Like, oh, well, at least he didn't end up dying. But no, he got out free 10 years later, thankfully. But um, yeah. since, yeah, since being out, he did kind of make it his mission in life to improve or try to improve the criminal justice excuse me try to improve the criminal justice system um he saw it as a failure to him and he doesn't want that system to fail other people so he does spend a lot of his time doing so and so he lives with his partner in tennessee from the last that i heard or read on these sources and he also um founded witness to innocence it's called with sister helen prejean i believe in 2003 what kind of foundation is that it's a similar um similar to innocence project i would say um i don't think it's on as grand of a scale but it's a non-profit organization and their main their main thing is to try to get rid of the death penalty in the states so i guess they're using a lot of cases similar to ray crones and the fact that there are many innocent people on death row to try and reduce or get rid of completely the capital punishment or death penalty whatever that's really cool yeah so um They've been on that for a little while, and I mean, it's been since 2003. That seems like yesterday, but obviously it's almost two decades now. Well, I mean, my sister, who's born in 2004, just turned 18, and I feel so old. Yeah, that feels weird to me. Time is such a strange concept. This is so irrelevant. to me, too. (laughs) It's so irrelevant, but time, time is just a social construct. It just doesn't make sense. But yes, um, yeah. that is Ray Crone. I it was odd because forensic podiatry was obviously important in this case, and I was able to find actually a scholarly article on it too that I've cited. Um, I'm sure you probably have used it too in yours uh, research journey. But um, they ended up citing his case, but every other source that existed just failed to mention it. Which I don't understand. Like, I get DNA yeah. is, like, the hard proof exonerating evidence. But I feel like you still need that supporting evidence to help a case like that, you know? Definitely. And, like, I'll even get into this, but I feel like even forensic podiatry isn't as solid 
of mm-hmm. evidence as we would hope. Yeah. Where, like oh, fingerprint absolutely. evidence, there has been some holes being poked in it because it is yeah. just impression evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's so many variables that can mess up evidence like this. Like it's not as reliable as we've always believed throughout like, you know, the decades they've been using it. All right. Um, but yes, that is all I have for Ray Chrome. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for telling us about that. Uh, I know when you had brought up his case when we were having a meeting to talk about kind of what cases we were going to do next, I had never heard of it. Um, but I'm always super excited to learn about another wrongful conviction case. Um, every time we talk about them, it doesn't get easier. You know, like these innocent people have had their lives stolen from them, but Eventually, some sort of justice was served, but it'll it'll never. We really need to fix the system so that this doesn't happen. Um, but I've really enjoyed learning about it, Nicole. Thank you. So, Journey, would you like to follow this up with a discussion on forensic podiatry? Definitely. Um, so I got pretty lucky because turns out I had done a forensic podiatry um, report or something in school. So that was really nice. Um, But basically, podiatry is the branch of medicine that is devoted to the diagnosis and surgical treatment of disorders of the foot, ankle, and lower extremity. So podiatry just means feet. If it helps, you can think of the crazy Canadian scientist on bones. Um, Forensic podiatry is the application of, I don't know how to pronounce this word, podiatric knowledge. And experience in forensic investigations in order to show the association of an individual with a crime scene or to answer any other legal question concerned with the foot or footwear that requires knowledge of the functioning foot. And so forensic podiatry is used whenever there is foot-related evidence recovered from a crime scene. And so in some cases, the feet are still in the footwear, which may have protected the foot from trauma, which is really handy. Um, And then forensic podiatrists can identify dead bodies through treatment records, detecting foot and leg pathologies from the foot and shoe prints, and linking shoe wear to particular features of the gait and feet. And so this science is important because every foot is unique in itself because of the individual structure of each part of the foot from the toes to the heel. So again, kind of like fingerprint evidence, you have your individual fingerprint ridges and each hand is kind of individual. Um, so forensic podiatry can be traced back to 1862 when a woman's footprint placed her at the scene of a murder and then she was convicted. I couldn't find any more information on that case, but it sounds kind of interesting. And then the 1970s were kind of when forensic podiatry was introduced to investigations with the help of Dr. Norman Gunn. And so Dr. Norman Gunn was a Canadian podiatrist who pioneered a lot of advancements in forensic podiatry, and he was actually the first person to develop a method for footprint analysis. And this kind of leads us more into what a forensic podiatrist does. And so there are four main areas of practice, which include identification, bare footprint analysis, forensic gait analysis, and footwear analysis and identification. So a lot of the information that a forensic podiatrist deals with is just with like the actual footprint and less so with the shoe print. Um, Shoe print analysis kind of ties more into like the tire tread analysis. Those are often compared 
to each other. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about all of them just so you guys get a nice, well-rounded scope of information. And so, for identification, each foot is unique and left and right feet show variations that can be discerned by the naked eye, apparently. And they can estimate stature, sex, age, sex, I said sex already, ancestry, and body weight. So, you might be able to guess, but the techniques they use to estimate these are very questionable. So, I'm not going to talk about them too much. Um... But the kind of premise is that there's a lot of inf- or variation in people's feet, so that's how we can identify them. But again, it hasn't been tested or proven. And then we have barefoot print analysis. So this is based on the foundational knowledge and understanding of the anatomy of the foot and how movement may affect footprints and the difference between static and dynamic impressions, um, which would just be if the person was standing still when the footprint was left or if they were moving. Um, And so to do this, a footprint is comprised of four regions, the toe region, the ball region, the arch, and the heel. And all of these regions of the footprint present individualistic characteristics. And there are six methods to analyze bare footprints that I'm going to talk about later on because they're very interesting. And then, in order to study and analyze footprints, you really have to take a footprint sequence, which is just the collection of numerous footprints from one person during their normal gait sequence, so that you can kind of gauge how they move and how their footprints are affected by their movement. And then, we have forensic gait analysis. This is a huge one. This one's relatively newer, um, but it's very popular. And so, with that the identification of a person by their gait or by features of their gait, usually from CCTV footage and comparison to footage of a known individual. And so the characteristics of a human walking are enough to identify the person at a distance, um, either alone or just in a group of people. This is, I mean, it's on topic, but I just think it's so interesting, like how most everything about a human is like somewhat unique to them, like even their gait. Like you I know, think, it's really cool. Yeah, and especially, like, looking at The Sims, for example, like, there's, like, six kinds of gait you can use. And obviously, like, they did the best they could, but it's, we're just, humans are just so hard to imitate. We're all so unique. Exactly. And, like, even any injuries that you have that could kind of affect that, or even if your hips are out of line or whatever, even if it's just, like, a temporary thing, it can still affect your gait. And then just getting adjusted will fix it and change it again. It's so cool. I have a question. I don't know if this will be brought up. Do forensic podiatrists do anything revolving around, um, like, foot... Like, this sounds silly, but footprints. Like, you know how your fingerprints have the swirls and the distinct prints to them? Do they ever focus on, like, the paw or the ball and the toe prints? Um, a little bit. We There hasn't been enough research to identify solely haha, on um, just the prints. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> but um, there has been some. Thank you so much. There has been some. They just can't. It's not as well researched as fingerprints. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Mm. I, I think I do talk about it a little bit later. All right, so forensic gait analysis was first used in July of 2000 in the identification of a jewelry thief. Um, 
basically he was just caught on CCTV camera and they were able to match his gait to him. Um, and obviously gait analysis has gotten much easier to do since the invention of CCTVs because they now have footage from so many places to analyze and compare gates to. And so some of the elements that they're looking for are general, which is the is the person taking long or short steps? Are they stiff or relaxed? Or do they have any signs of pathology or injury? They look at the feet, the foot and ankle joints. Um, is there outward rotation, inversion, which is the foot tilted towards the midline, or is it tilted towards or away from the midline, which is eversion, um, and the degree of push-off at the toe, so kind of how you, like, propel yourself forward. Um, I don't know if you guys can visualize that. Um, and then they look at the knee. They examine, is it varus? So are the knees farther apart when the feet are side-by-side, side, or are they valgus, which is the knees touch and feet are far apart? And if there's any knee flexion during the stance. And then they look at the hip and pelvis region. Is there any abduction or adduction, rotation, tilt? How does that affect their gait? And so then these elements are paired with upper body assessments, such as positioning of the shoulder, neck, and head. So they do look at the whole body for forensic gait analysis, but focus mainly on how they're walking. And then lastly, we have footwear analysis and identification. This one applies mostly to this case. Forensic podiatrists are involved with examination of footwear in a forensic context when a suspect has been identified. So this practice involves the analysis, comparison, and evaluation of wear patterns and the external and internal components of the shoe. And so the identification involving footwear is the most common job for forensic podiatrists. Oh, I think I said earlier that forensic gait analysis was, so I guess I got that wrong. Um... But now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the six methods to analyze the bare feet, and I'll start with the Norman Gunn method. And so this method was developed, obviously, by Norman Gunn in the 1970s, and for this method, six lines are drawn on an acetate sheet that is placed over the footprint. And for those of you who might not know or be able to visualize, an acetate sheet is basically just a clear piece of paper, pretty much. And so... Five of the lines are drawn from the tip of the toes to the farthest point of the heel called the turnion. Um, and then the sixth line measures across the widest part of the ball of the foot. And so then depending on the footprint evidence, there are additional measurements that can be taken called the extended gun method. And so this method is used for partial footprints where there is no heel um, evidence. And so... It just revolves around the measurement of the ball of the foot to get any estimates of length and width from the foot. And then from those measurements, they're able to determine how tall the person is, what sex they are, how old they are in theory, um, etc. And so then the second is the optical center method. And so this method was developed by Winkleman in a case study in 1987. And then it was improved upon by Kennedy in 2003. So I guess right after um, Ray Crone started his foundation. And so this method isn't very different from the gun method, except that they measure from the center points of the toes to the center point of the heels instead of the tips of the toes to the tips of the heels or heel. Um, and so they draw like perfect circles over each toe and heel print so they can find the exact center of it. Um, 
I will be posting photos of examples on our website. They're actually really, really cool to look at. And then I'll have some fun just like seeing the difference between footprint photos. Um, and then we have Robin's diagonal and parallel axis method. And so this method was developed by Luis Robbins in 1978 to evaluate footprints by using parallel and diagonal lines to determine lengths at different parts of the footprint. And so in the parallel axis method, um, there's a grid position so that the center of it, um, so the center of the grid, the turning on landmark of the heel and the lateral most part of the big toe are aligned in a straight line. And then a baseline is drawn perpendicular to the designated longitudinal axis and the respective toe lengths are measured from the baseline to the tips of the toe prints. So basically, you're putting the foot on a grid paper and you're just making X and Y axis to take measurements from. Um, and the longitudinal axis starts at the turning on landmark of the heel, which is the farthest back point uh, in the center. And then each toe line is drawn straight from the X axis or baseline up the Y. Um, and then the diagonal is pretty much the same, but the toe lines are drawn out from the turning on point instead of parallel to the point. So they're drawn in a diagonal line. Um, the overlay method was developed by Schmerke and Lovejoy in 1985, and it develops, or it involves, sorry, tracing a known footprint into, onto a clear acetate sheet and then placing this tracing over the unknown footprint impressions. I personally think that this method is kind of dumb because just think of drawing, like tracing your hand and then putting that handprint over a hand. Like that's so like nondescript kind of, there's really nothing special to it. Yeah. There's no science evidence behind that. It's just, Hmm, this looks like it could fit. It does. Exactly. So it matches. Yeah, right? Like, that's ridiculous. Um, and so uh, this method is used or is favored in the United Kingdom, so that's concerning. Um, but apparently in 2005, John DiMaggio, he introduced some descriptive terms to the science that apparently help it represent the morphological features of the foot, but I don't know what those are. Um... And then we have Rossi's podometric system. And so this procedure was invented by Rossi in 1992. And I don't mean David Rossi from Criminal Minds. This is a separate Rossi. And the focus of this procedure was to obtain the rearmost side of the heel while measuring the whole footprint to maintain reliability. So it involves drawing two lines referred to as tangents on the medial and lateral, so inside and outside edges of the foot or the footprint, the tangents then intersect at a point where they are traced backwards and provide a reference point for other linear measurements. Um, again, I'll have photos. This will make a lot more sense when you're looking at the photos, and I'll maybe post them when we do our Instagram post just so that you can have them more easily accessible. Um, we then have the real method. So this method was developed by Sarah Reel in 2012, and it's a fairly recent method, and it's thought to be the most valid and reliable form of footprint analysis um, because it involves technology. So the footprints are scanned so that they can be digitized and then measurements can be taken. 
and a central axis is drawn down the middle of the foot with inner and outer tangent lines. Um, a grid is then superimposed on the print using the software, and the central axis of the foot is aligned with the vertical axis of the grid. And then once a print is aligned, a horizontal line is marked at the posterior point of the foot, so the back, and then its intersection with the central axis acts as a reference point for other measurements. So, in to my understanding, she just combined all of the other methods and just made it into one and then invented a software that could just do it for you. Um, and so this method involves taking the length, breadth, and angular measurements of the scanned footprints. And so it takes more measurements, which give us more individual information and is mostly computerized, which can mitigate human error, which is what you want in an impression evidence science. And so since um, we've been taught to think very critically about forensic science, I'm going to cover the validity and reliability of forensic podiatry since it is an impression evidence. And so with impression evidence, you can't guarantee the quality of the sample you get at a crime scene. And so if you incorrectly collect the impression at the scene, then you often ruin that impression and lose that evidence or wreck it in some way and still lose that evidence. So identifications of impression evidence is largely subjective and is based on the experience of the examiner and how many characteristics they use to base the identification on. And so there are no studies that associate the number of matching characteristics with the probability that the impression was made by a common source. And often each laboratory will have their own number of characteristics used, like with fingerprint evidence and I think bite mark evidence, um, where one lab will only need seven points of similarity, whereas another lab will use 21. So there's just no way to make sure that they are using the same number. Um, and so this causes issues because a footprint might match someone in one lab, but not in another due to their points of comparison. And so experts in impression evidence often argue that they accumulate a sense of these probabilities through experience, which may be true. However, it's very difficult to then avoid biases in experience-based judgments. And so then the main scientific basis for impression evidence is that mass-produced items pick up features of wear that individualize them over time. So like on those Converse shoes, um, they would have been able to see some wear that was individual to those shoes. But if the perpetrator continued to wear those shoes after committing that crime, then there will be other features of wear that won't match that shoe print. Um, and so with that, it just kind of makes it a little bit messier because you need to catch that person at that time to be able to match the wear exactly. And even then, it's still so subjective. Um, but like Nicole asked, with footprints, examiners more so depend on friction ridges and individualize that way. And so your footprint is unique to you, and apparently no one will have the same friction ridge pattern as you in theory. But again, it's extremely difficult for a crime scene technician to get a perfect or even partial footprint that shows friction ridges because a lot of the time people are wearing shoes while they are committing crimes. Um... And therefore, like all impression evidence, the analysis is largely subjective and should be supported by other physical evidence, which was the case in this case. Um, 
The impression evidence was used to exonerate Ray Crone, but it was also supporting stronger DNA evidence, which was or holds more scientific basis. And that's pretty much all I have for forensic podiatry. If anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out. I I find it so fascinating how much you can learn just from a foot. And so I apologize if this is really boring, but those methods were so, so cool. Um, even though they are impression evidence and that's a little tricky, but very neat what we can get knowledge from. I have some questions. Um, I'm sorry if my audio is still a bit laggy. But do you think, um, I don't know if you guys have orthotics or like when orthotics are made. Like, do you think forensic podiatrists could go to these orthopedic centers? It's an orthopedic center, right? They could go to these centers, find their orthotics used and help them in that case to try and match like their gait footprint and like weight distribution on a print like that. I don't know if that makes sense probably but i feel like with the orthotics they would still have some wear with them that would also be individual so they might not be like you'd have to have the actual orthotic yeah sorry i mean like going into because they need to take that print basically to see what your gait's like to form the orthotic to your foot so they'd have on file i would think i don't know i don't work with orthotics but they would have that footprint (laughs) on file and the weight distribution on all of the things around that like I don't know what I'm trying to say I guess like could there be a database I really hope that they do that I know I understand yeah yeah I understand what you're trying to say but that would be really really cool and a really good tool for forensic podiatrists to kind of utilize but it kind of crosses the same ethical boundaries as the forensic genealogy where you're going Mm -hmm. there to get orthotics fit you're not expecting to be used in a criminal case i guess and that would be kind of weird to disclose that you're like i just need orthotics and they're like okay but if you kill someone we have to hand this over (laughs) yeah i feel like that (laughs) needs to be the disclaimer on everything now though like no matter oh, what you yeah, do yeah 100 well because even the cctvs like yeah okay if you commit a crime we're gonna look at that and analyze it like you're kind of consenting yeah. to being on tv yeah what a wild Definitely. world we live in my other question Crazy. very Crazy. like unrelated but kind of related because you had said for the most part people obviously are wearing shoes when committing crimes um hypothetically yeah. This is, like, super not important, but if we had the technology that we had now, do you think we would solve a lot more crimes from the past that where, like, shoes just weren't worn as frequently? Hypothetically. Like, this has no basis for anything. Just my own curiosity. (laughs) But, like, you know what? I feel like... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like you could because your feet would be... I feel like they'd have to be, like, sweaty enough to actually leave. Like, I don't know if your feet are as oily as your hands. Mm-hmm. I would assume that they are. Um, yeah. But because it's the floor, it's probably going to get, like, it's easier to get ruined. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I feel like if you step in something and you leave a footprint, I feel like you would be able to solve some if 
they weren't wearing shoes. And I feel like if you're not wearing shoes and your feet are going to be really dirty. So they, yeah, that might help or it might hinder it. I don't know. Cause I know there's cases too, where like people are in their own homes and it's a domestic thing and they end up like just being in their PJs and barefoot and they kill people. Like, obviously they're still caught right. for the most part in that sense, but like they would be barefoot in those situations. So like, could they use that to kind of help further where we are now with that evidence? I don't know. Just my yeah, brain going in overdrive, like... you know? No, definitely. Yeah, because you'd need to do... That would be a really good way to perform research is to take any crime where the perpetrator was barefoot and kind mm-hmm. of analyze it from that perspective. But it's so hard to keep the ground... Yeah. Like not contaminated i guess is the word i'm looking for yeah because the people like police officers have to walk in and that's they do not think about the fact that oh i might be walking on evidence Mm -hmm. they're just like get to the body which that's obviously not a bad thing to do but it is annoying from a forensic science perspective where you're like hey you just contaminated an entire crime scene and got rid of an entire form of forensic evidence another thing related to that unrelated to podiatry but when we did the mock crime scenes in uh, the forensics class this past year, that was like the main thing too, because I honestly would yeah. never have thought of it. But the students, like they opened the door and a lot of them just, just walked in. Like they wanted to see the scene, but really the crime scene yeah. starts at the door. So you have to open the door, you have to photograph everything, get your booties on, make sure everything on the ground is okay before even getting to where you need to go and that just sometimes yeah is too like you don't think about that there's other things to be thinking about at that time exactly well even I wouldn't have even thought of that until I went to the forensic science center in Calgary and Mm -hmm. um the guy there had talked to me about a case and how the there were so many police officers in and out and firemen in and out and they were just kicking around evidence and walking all mm-hmm. over any potential footprints. And he's an mm-hmm. impression evidence expert, I guess, he specializes in tire tread evidence. And so he was like really shocked that there were so many people that did that. And I was like, that wouldn't have even crossed my mind until now. But yeah, I'm going to put those footprint photos on our website because they're really, really neat. There's a couple where like even just the shape of your toes and the way they're aligned, mm-hmm. like show so many cool things and like extra toes obviously are very informative but do you want to know too useless information that my brain stores that i've just recently learned about that so our toes the way again online information it could be totally wrong but i love to believe what i see online but our shoes nowadays the toes are so narrow and our feet aren't meant to be confined like that in a lot of the shoes that we wear so our foot shape has Mm -hmm. changed to accommodate to that you know what i mean so like even our shoe like our footprint and shoe print now would be different than say 100 150 years ago because of the changes in shoe style because your big toes and definitely especially with those super pointy high heels Mm -hmm. like your your toes aren't meant to crumple in on each other they're meant to be dramatically spread out to give you that balance and space right so that's so crazy yeah that would ultimately impact gait and walking and like weight distribution 
which would ultimately then impact definitely you know isn't that wild that's so That's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. But that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know the validity behind it. Well, even, I've... like, the daughter of a chiropractor, like, will be walking around and dad will be watching someone walk. And he's like, oh, like, their one hip is stuck. Like, they need to get that adjusted because it's mm-hmm. affecting this, this, and this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, like, they could be having problems with ankle mobility, but it's because their lumbar vertebrae are out of whack and it's affecting their entire leg. That's so crazy to me. So cool. Right? It's so neat. I feel like that would be one of the main yeah, things so that's that, what I have. Yeah, that hinders podiatry would be all of the other variables that can affect it, you know? But that's not to say, like, yeah. every other well, science how easy it isn't affected. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's very, very cool. Because, yeah, it, I don't know. It was just really interesting. So if anyone wants more information, I have a bunch of sources and a whole bunch of fun things to look at. So it was really neat. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was really interesting. I, like, I, we didn't learn a lot about podiatry when we were going through, like, our certificate program. So learning about all this. And, I mean, I know you mentioned you had a project on that, which is super helpful. But, yeah, I learned a lot today. Uh, thank you both of you for teaching me about these two subjects that I didn't know much about. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So if you guys want to tune in next time, we are going to be talking about the case of Alexander Litvinenko and radiation poisoning, uh, which I am personally very excited about because his case was kind of, uh, um, I forget the word I'm trying to use, (laughs) but his case was kind of like groundbreaking in the sense that it was the first documented confirmed case of a certain type of radiation poisoning so yeah excited to get into that um just before we head off i have a pretty light uh podiatry joke for you guys very nice i'm excited (laughs) all right so uh why do the two podiatrists hate each other why they were arch enemies (laughs) (laughs) i like it Oh, that's a good one. I mean, you guys know you know that podiatrists can never win because they've already seen defeat. <gasps> oh, oh, a double whammy! Oh, what did we deserve that's to get amazing. a double whammy today? That's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, Journey, where can people find us on social media? So, people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. Our website is WhatTheForensics.ca. And our email is WhatTheForensics at gmail.com. And please feel free to reach out if you have any questions, comments, concerns, reviews, anything. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you very much. Um, So with all that being said, and another couple topics learned today, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Uh, We really hope you enjoyed it and learned something new today, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm